Good morning, men. Let's get our Bibles out. Let's turn to the book of Revelation. I know we're all eagerly anticipating what the Lord has for us today. I noticed from the schedule, we'll all be preoccupied with just one verse today. Revelation chapter 3, verse 8. I thought we'd read it, then pray, and then dig in. Revelation chapter 3, verse 8. Jesus speaks and John writes, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut. For if you, for you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Father, make us fearless, make us faithful. Make us men who keep your word. In Jesus' name we pray and for his sake, amen. Once a security guard at the Israeli Museum was asked by a tourist to date an ancient piece of pottery. He said of the small clay lamp, it's 4,000 in three years, nine months and two days old. Well, the tourist was surprised. That's a precise calculation. How can you be so exact? The man replied, well, it was 4,000 years old when I was hired, and I've worked here for three years, nine months, and two days. (laughs) Well, you and I have been charged with keeping a divinely inspired text that has survived from antiquity. Over its first few thousand years of circulation, many a courageous man has given his all to keep God's word. But how have we done since we've been on the job? How well will we do with the time we have left? We learn from Revelation chapter 3 and verse 8 that the leaders of the church in Philadelphia had passed this test with flying colors. The exalted Lord Jesus bestows on them his priceless pronouncement. You have kept my word. Our text informs us that this church had a little strength. And that's not a disparaging evaluation. It certainly wasn't a reflection of this church's spiritual weakness. Not at all. This was a church firing on all cylinders. All the Holy Spirit had to do was just crack open a door of possibility. And this opportunistic bunch was on the march. And though this church was situated next door to the synagogue of Satan, they never once had denied Jesus' name. Oh, that every church had such little strength. This phrase, little or micro strength, probably describes the church's earthly physical characteristics. I don't have their attendance figures, but I suppose their crowd was modest. They met in a cramped storefront with poor visibility. And forget a zoning variance. No one on the town council attended Calvary Chapel, Philadelphia. The big denominational church downtown, they had all the strategic contacts, the movers and the shakers. This was a little church with little clout, little crowds. Little buzz, little talent, little money, little facilities, little parking for all I know. 
The church in Philadelphia couldn't rely on any heavy hitters to carry them. They had to play small ball. They scratched and clawed just to get a few runners home. For years, this church in Philadelphia had been stuck in the affiliation process. (laughs) Trying to gather a big enough crowd to get that regional guy's attention. They had to count pregnant women twice just to get to 50 people. (laughs) Two jobs, a wife always in the nursery, metal chairs, an unreliable sound system. And now another guy's multi-zillion dollar video campus starts up down the street. Hey, I know little church can be discouraging. But rather than shut its doors, our Lord promises to gift this little church with an open door. And the primary reason why was this church kept his word. Apparently, a little church can be a healthy church, even a successful church. Hey, Calvary Chapel Sardis, it had a name, a reputation, but it was dead as a doorknob. In contrast, the church of Philadelphia wasn't big enough to be on anybody's radar but God's. Yet this church was moving and grooving. It was little, but it was alive. Here is how any church, regardless of its size, grows great in the master's eyes. It keeps his word. The year 2012 was a big year for my wife and I. We went from zero grandkids to four grandkids in just ten months. Two of my sons had sons, Colt and Quincy, while my daughter had twins, Luke and Kate. I went from dad and Pastor Sandy to (laughs) G-Daddy. Now on occasion, Kathy and I, we get asked, can you guys keep the kids? And keeping grandkids is a different kind of child experience than raising your own. A parent feels the pressure to fashion and shape their kids, whereas a grandparent loves them as is. Let their parents rein them in. I'm going to turn them loose. When my grandkids are with me, they run and they play and they eat ice cream, stuff God created kids to do. Where the spirit of grandpa is, there is liberty. I love my grandkids like they're my own, but they're not. At the end of the day, I have to give those kids back to their parents. They were sired by someone else to whom I am accountable. A grandparent's job is to assist the parents, not insist on their own agenda. And I believe keeping the word is like good grandparenting. I keep the word like I keep my grandkids. Oh, I cherish spending time with God's word. I love the word. I will protect it from evil and I will turn it loose each Sunday to do exactly what God birthed it to do, to heal and convict 
and save and cleanse and change and transform and to encourage. I love God's word as is. I don't restrict what his word allows and I don't allow what his word restricts. I am not adding to or taking away. It is his word, not mine. My only agenda is to keep his word faithfully. On the night before Jesus was crucified, he said to his men, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Jesus was on mission. The cross was now in his crosshairs. Through his word, he had calmed the storm and opened blind eyes and even called the dead to life. But now he leaves his word with his disciples. The word made flesh deposits his powerful, miracle working word among his followers for safekeeping. They were to grandparent his active word. That meant love it, get to know it, cherish it, protect it. Turn it loose, but then return it to him unaltered. This is why the church in Philadelphia was micro strong. The word they kept had rubbed off on them. You know, here's what I've noticed in the year or so since I've been a grandpa. Unlike the exhausting job of raising kids, for some reason, grandparent is just a joy. It's a far more enjoyable job. You feed off the kids' energy and zeal and enthusiasm. Man, a year and a half ago, I was suffering a severe case of PPSD, post-parenting stress disorder. But it was the grandkids that lifted me out of the doldrums. It's been said grandkids are God's reward for parenting teenagers. And likewise... The energized word rubs off on the man or the church that keeps it. By cherishing God's word, we constantly renew our strength. It feeds our soul. The words of Jesus restore our innocence and our enthusiasm and our joy and our love for ministry. His word is the protein shake that fuels the muscle of faith. You remember John's words, 1 John chapter 2. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong. And why such strength? The word of God abides in you. Jesus calls us to keep his word, for he knows in the process his word will keep us fit for his purposes. Trust me, the revival that our nation needs and that you and I seek won't be found in the fads of evangelicalism. True revival rises up from God's eternal word. It's been said the great Christian revolutions come not by the discovery of something that was unknown before. They happen when somebody takes radically something which was always there. This is why the man who keeps God's word is sowing the seeds of revival. And this is why the forces of darkness will try to sever a pastor from God's word. Like a base runner rounding third base, he's behind the throw. His goal is to smack that catcher so hard it dislodges the baseball. In the same way, there are enemies barreling down on you, pastor. They want to knock you off God's word. And there are three such foes we face. You know them well. The world and the flesh. And the devil. Realize, ancient Philadelphia was a city with an agenda. 
It didn't just exist to foster peace and quiet for its citizens. No, this outpost was founded to further the Hellenization of Asia. From Philadelphia, Greek idolatry and paganism were aggressively spreading eastward. All that stood in its way was this little church. And here, brothers, is where the providence of God has placed us. Right in the line of fire. A faithful church is all that stands against the spread of today's paganism. The world we live in has an agenda and we're in the way. And that's why the world's goal is to dislodge the faithful pastor any way it can from the word of God. I brought with me a list of names that you'll be called if you dare to teach and keep the whole of God's word. Sexist. Repressive. Misogynist. Homophobe. Bigot. Religious extremist. Christian jihadist. Neanderthal, hate monger, certainly none of those names fits you. But there is so much hostility towards God in today's world that if you declare his word, expect to hear them. I was on a plane one Saturday night returning from a men's retreat, preparing to teach the next morning on Revelation 19, the glorious return of King Jesus. I had my laptop out. I was working on my message When suddenly the girl in the seat beside me, she just blurts out. She says, you can't say that. She says, you can't say that. She was reading my sermon over my shoulder. She said, how can you say Jesus is going to judge and make war with sinners? I mean, she couldn't believe that a pastor would suggest that Jesus had any other interest in human affairs than comforting old folks and feeding street people. That justice and a more righteous world are also concerns for a holy God. Well, the rest of the flight made for a lively conversation. (laughs) But this is the world that we live in. God's truth is being muffled and muted at every turn. And you, pastor, are the only person left between faithfulness and apostasy. Don't be intimidated into silence. Never forget, before Jesus left to save your soul, he turned to you as one of his followers and he asked you to keep his word. And yet we're sometimes tempted. If we can just sidestep certain hot topics. Or couch the language in innocuous phrases. Oh, we can avoid a lot of controversy. Recently, I spoke to a pastor friend who admitted he's weary of the stigma that people attach to Christianity. He told me the Bible teaches that God literally created the earth in six days. That homosexuality is a sin. That miracles actually happen. And I believe it's all true. I'm just tired of being laughed at for my beliefs. People think I'm a buffoon for believing what I do. To this pastor's credit, he ministers on the front lines of the culture wars. He's in the thick of the battle. But the daily barrage of sarcasm and disrespect, it has wearied him. Gentlemen, I'm not worried about the strength of the world's argument. Christianity wins on logic every time. But what eats out us all is the loudness 
of the voices. Often it seems like it's us against the world. Well, it is. Like the base runner racing for home plate, this world knows it's out by a country mile. The only way it can call itself safe is to bowl us over and dislodge us from God's word. Men of God, hold on with all your might. But a hostile world is not our only enemy. The enemy within. This is the more sinister threat. Though I I am a man of God, I am still clothed in flesh. And my flesh desires to be liked and safe and hip at all costs. It picks out sins to oppose that the world agrees need to be opposed. The evil that's politically correct. But when did the foot soldier get to pick what battles he wants to fight? Those of us who tackle God's word book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, we don't get that luxury. The commander dictates the battles. As a pastor, I want to be culturally relevant to the folks who hear me teach. It helps my application of God's truth if I can frame it in the context of my culture. An ambassador needs to speak the local language. But relating to the culture should stop short of kissing up to its ungodliness. Relevance should never temper my zeal for truth or file down its edginess. How many pastors have made an idol out of wanting to be liked and cool and grow a bigger church? They have sacrificed God's truth on the altar of relevance. Trust me, it's happened to pastors better than you. Men, our flesh is wicked. It always takes the path of least resistance. Like water, it flows to the lowest point. It was said of one pastor, if his preaching were a medicine, it wouldn't be strong enough to heal. And if it were a poison, it wouldn't be strong enough to harm. No one keeps God's word by watering it down. The pastor who cherishes the words of Jesus won't always preach a feel-good, ruffle-no-feathers sermon. I mean, you recall in John chapter 6, Jesus spoke to the crowd in terms that were calibrated to create an unpleasant reaction. In fact, his disciples complained, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? We're told later, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. The words of Jesus that he spoke challenged as well as comforted. Are we keeping his words? Will we hand them back to him unaltered? I love how Charles Spurgeon once put it. Many say that we ought to keep abreast of the times, whatever that may mean. And that there is a certain spirit of the age to which we should be subject This, to me, is treason against sovereign truth. I know of only one spirit to whom I desire to be subject, and that is the spirit of all the ages who never changes. If we have but little strength, let the times and the spirits go where they like. We shall keep to the Holy Spirit and to his eternal teachings. Brother, cling to God's word. Cling to infallible and immutable revelation. Whatever novelty comes up, keep to the word of Jesus. Whatever discovery may be made by the wise men of the age, let Christ be wisdom to you. 
Here is your anchorage. The book is our ultimatum. Indeed. Well, the world and the flesh will try to knock you off the ball and sever you from God's word. But so will the devil. Man, he has a million tactics. Lust. Fear. Intimidation. Condemnation. Despair. Laziness. Envy. Satan slides with his spikes high. His goal is to jar God's word out of your midst. The synagogue of Satan was right down the street from Philadelphia. You can be sure this church was a target. This past Easter, the grandkids were at the house. Quincy was playing with the pots and pans underneath the stove. When all of a sudden, my 15-month-old grandson comes strolling into the living room with a large meat cleaver right in his little hand. We forgot to child-proof the cabinet. Thankfully, no harm was done. But I started thinking, what if he'd fallen and stabbed himself on my watch? My precious grandson was entrusted to me. What if he had harmed himself as a result of my negligence? I don't think I could have forgiven myself. And I am sure this is how the pastor who fails to keep God's word feels in the end. Don't let the devil lull you to sleep or back you down or bowl you over. When Paul instructs Timothy to keep the word, he writes, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Our salvation and that of our listeners hinges on our keeping God's word. You know, most baseball players, they store their bags in a canvas Store their bats in a canvas bag. But one of the game's very best hitters, Ichiro Suzuki, he keeps eight of his special bats in a shock-proof, moisture-free trunk, especially designed for his bats. He values and protects and readies those bats. And in the same way, we should be vigilant to keep God's word. Get nonchalant in this area of your ministry and Satan will strike you out. If you want to hit it out of the park on Sundays, brother, keep his word fearlessly and faithfully. It is a pastor's sacred charge. You know, all pastors, we get our share of critical letters. That's why when some encouraging correspondence comes along, it's a treat. I brought with me this morning one of those encouraging letters I keep it in my Bible. In fact, I pull it out and read it every other day for the most part. It's from Marcella. Marcella's 88 years old. She loves Jesus and she goes to our church. She's a former school teacher. And here's what Marcella wrote. Dear Pastor Sandy, Thanksgiving is day after tomorrow. I am thankful for you. I learn something new about the Bible every time I hear you speak. You are brave enough to say hard things. You speak the truth no matter what may be the possible reactions of various people in the audience. I understand that many pastors feel obligated to say what is acceptable, especially those who heavily support the economics of the church. You, on the other hand, seem to be beholden to no one. You do your research. You think of illustrations. You think of stories, you make it interesting, and I am grateful that you teach the whole Bible. 
You stand up for marriage. You make it plain that the man is ordained to be the head of the household when disagreements find no solution. You make known that a boy needs a father to show how show him what it means to be a man. You are clear that poor decisions produce pure, poor outcomes. You warn of judgment that comes when in the Lord's sight enough is enough. I hope your whole congregation appreciates how you, unique you are teaching the word of the Lord, for he has spoken it. I am so grateful for your ministry that I must keep a large paper napkin in my bag to mop up the tears that flow every time I hear you, even now as I think of it. Keep up the good work, Marcella. Now you know why I read that letter every other day. I cherish that letter. Not because it strokes my ego, but because it refocuses a heart that tends to wander. I'm 55 years old and I want Marcella's letter to apply to my life, not just today, but until the day I die. Years ago, my dad and I, we were playing golf together and we were joined by another man about my dad's age. They were talking when the fella asked dad, what do your sons do for a living? Dad said, ah, they're both pastors. The man said, boy, I bet you're proud of them. And I'll never forget my father's response. He answered loud enough for me to hear. He said, so far. (laughs) My dad knew I had plenty of time to still mess up. And so do you. You have kept the word so far. We need to recognize our enemies and let nothing cause us to drop the ball. And notice again, Jesus says that the word we're holding and that we're keeping is his word. You have kept my word. Here is the first principle for the minister of the gospel. The word we preach Belongs to Jesus. Just as my grandkids are not my kids, your Bible is not your word. I love my grandkids. I treat them as if they're my own, but they're not. They belong to someone else. I suppose I'm sensitive to this in regards to grandkids since my dad had a hard time learning this lesson. At first, he assumed that my kids belonged to him. And thus, when my wife asked him to stop overdosing the toddlers on chocolate, he refused to listen. As we say down south, he paid her no mind. He ignored her request, and that's when she came running to me to intervene. And man, it got ugly. My dad told me he could do as he pleased. They were his grand tots. And I got mad. I warned him that I wouldn't bring the kids over to his house anymore if he kept up his all-you-can-eat candy buffet. He threatened to sue me for his grand parental rights. Thankfully, we both cooled off. Settled out of court, by the way. But I will never forget the rhubarb in the driveway. Hey, Dad got confused, and he treated my kids as if they were his. And a pastor can make this same mistake. He can treat God's words as if if they were his to do with as he pleases. 
Pastor, this is not your book. This is, these are not your words. Jesus commends the church in Philadelphia. You have kept my word. You remember Paul's statement to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8? He says, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Just because you use and teach God's word, even verse by verse, it doesn't mean you use it legitimately. It's never a pastor's prerogative to use God's word as a policeman's wand to beat his people into compliance. The Pharisees, they use the Old Testament words not to glorify God, but to control the masses. Jesus said they bind heavy burdens and they lay them on men's shoulders. They used his word in ways that served themselves. And a pastor can do the same. The giving slumps. And that pastor is able to pull an insight from an unrelated text that just happens to stress tithing. How amazing is that? The pastor needs a raise or his authority has been questioned or there's a shortage of volunteers. Oh, it's so easy for him to fashion the word to serve his own interests. Oh, sometimes the application is spirit led, but more often it's pastor fabricated. Be careful. It's not your word. I don't know why pastors have such a problem letting the words of Jesus speak for themselves Especially when they're not our words to soften up or make easier. Take, for example, Jesus' statement in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, verse 14. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. We're so quick to downplay the notion that our forgiveness from God is somehow tied to our willingness to pardon others. Why is that? When that's clearly what Jesus says. On face value, Jesus' words are scary here. I mean, the idea doesn't fit in nicely with our soteriology. And so we excuse it away. But what if Jesus said it this way because he wanted it to scare us? To let us know that our willingness to forgive is more important to him than our compulsion to cross every theological T and dot every doctrinal I. Some of us can parse the life right out of a passage. We're great at pulling teeth from a verse that was intended by God to bite. Why do we think it's our duty to protect God's reputation when he's not too worried about it himself? We can put a nice sheen on why God commanded the execution of the Canaanites. Some of us can preach a second coming without a hint of blood or violence. We can take a verse like Psalm 7 verse 11. God is angry with the wicked every day. And by the time we're through with it, we've turned it into a Brahms lullaby. There's one problem. God is angry with the wicked every day. And it'd probably be nice for us to let him know. Here's my point. To keep the word is not to stuff it in some man-made box or re-image it or soften it up by chewing it to death until it's palatable for modern appetites. To keep the word is to hold it lightly and to respect it for what it is and to let it do its work. Remember, it's his word 
It belongs to Jesus. And that's what makes it living and powerful. Once a young man, he walked into a country barber shop. The walls were decorated with trophies of wild animals. There was a deer's head with a full rack. There was a wild fox, a wild turkey, as well as several stuffed birds. But the young man, he wasn't impressed. You see, he was studying taxidermy. And he was critical of what he said was shabby work. In fact, he singled out the owl that was sitting up on the shelf. He said, look at its drooping wings, that crooked leg, the angle of its head. It looks so unnatural. He went on and on until suddenly the owl turned its head and winked. He had been criticizing the lifelikeness of a live bird. And this is true of the Bible's critics. Berate it, deny it, say what you will. But when it's ready, God's word will fly off the shelf to do as exactly as it pleases. You know, when my grandkids get dropped off at my house, I don't lock them away or box them up. Part of me keeping them is to let them go and be themselves. And this is how we keep his word. We turn it loose to let it provoke all of the reactions that God intended. Conviction and gravity as well as grace and peace. I think our tendency to overparse a text and analyze it to death comes from our own arrogance. Why is it pastors are so uncomfortable with the idea that God hasn't reconciled all of our curiosities? Who says the Almighty always has to explain Himself to us? This is why proud academics invent their isms. Calvinism and Armenianism, pietism and rationalism. It's an attempt to help God out, assist God in putting together the pieces of a puzzle He didn't want solved. Realize every ism of theology exalts a system of interpretation above the words it seeks to explain. We forget the words of Jesus don't belong to us. This is why Calvary Chapel pastors are blessed to have cut our theological teeth on the Bible itself. Thank you, Pastor Chuck. Pastor Chuck didn't give us some systematic theology. He gave us the Bible. He let us study it and grow in it and develop a biblical theology. I don't think we really appreciate the biblical heritage we've been given. It is unique. The pastor who leaves no room for mystery and wonder in his theology is the proud soul who, quite frankly, has forgotten his place in the universe. In Romans 9 through 11, when Paul engages in that lofty discussion of God's sovereignty and man's free will, at times he sounds like he's on one side of the argument, and at other times you wonder if he's changed teams. Apparently, Paul had no problem with a little ambiguity. And you learn why at the close of his discussion. In Romans 11, verse 33, all of his ponderings turn to praise. He has scaled the peaks of theological thought and he has arrived there speechless. He writes, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. 
in the end, a theology that doesn't turn to doxology is shallow and superficial. I don't want to buy into any belief that ultimately fuels my pride and not God's praise. Do you understand what the word theology means? By definition, it is the study of God. Doesn't that concept scare you? It should. Who am I to study God? Master of divinity? (laughs) Doctor of divinity? Really? I'm sorry, God doesn't fit under my microscope. He can't be confined to a test tube or a textbook. He's certainly not subject to the analysis of dead Germans. Paul goes on, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? God never seeks our approval nor owes us an explanation. Be careful, men. It's not your words. Here's what I know about theology. A little humility goes a long, long ways. Once a pastor and his wife attended a large pastor's conference, sort of like this one. As they walked into the packed stadium, the pastor, he gazed about and he asked out loud, I wonder how many great men of God are in this room. His wife commented, one less than you think. God is omniscient, not the pastor. I take comfort in this truth. What's over my head is still under his feet. I was told early in my ministry that the first rule of theology is this. Where God has placed a period, don't you change it to a question mark. If God doesn't offer an explanation, learn to live without one. Don't push In this life, we all see through a glass dimly. Jesus alone has it figured out. Our job is to keep his word. Yet there's another. There's another way that this is easier said than done. Often the words of Jesus get preached in ways that I'm sure Jesus himself would have never used them. We employ his phrases without considering his heart. I cringe when I hear a pastor reduce the words of Jesus to a proof text he uses to bully home his point or to justify some worldliness. Can you imagine? Or worse, use the words of Jesus to attack his enemies. Everyone who speaks for Jesus should apply his words in the spirit in which they were spoken. Remember, Paul taught the ministers of the new covenant in Second Corinthians three, the letter kills But the spirit gives life. You can do great damage by wielding the word of God without the heart and spirit of Jesus. I mean, it was the Pharisees who took God's word in a stilted, rigid, wooden kind of way. Imagine this. In the name of God, they quoted the words of God in order to reject the truth of God. The truth Jesus so beautifully conveyed. They proved You can miss the forest for the trees. The Pharisees were so angry when Jesus violated their version of a day of rest. They failed to see that he was offering them something greater, a rest for their souls. 
When Jesus compared faith in his broken body and shed blood to eating and drinking, fleshly Pharisees, they only scratched their head instead of opening their hearts. Their ears worked, but their hearts were hard and deaf. These men could mouth the words of Scripture and heed its deeds. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But Jesus saw God's word in 3D, not just the words and the deeds, but the attitudes as well. I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her. Jesus had such a commanding grasp on God's truth because he not only knew the words, he knew God's heart. And this is what makes a good pastor. Not can we recite verses or that we're steeped in theological isms or that we're adept in Greek. But do we know his heart? Among Calvary Chapel pastors, we place a great emphasis on the exegesis of God's holy word. But men, apart from his spirit, our efforts are just grits without butter. And if you don't know, that's not a good thing. As the future unfolds, I don't worry about too many Calvary Chapel pastors joining the ranks of the Sadducees. For most of us, liberal theology has been tried in the balance and found wanting. As I see it, it's far more likely that Calvary pastors might swell the numbers of the Pharisees. If we forget that the word we preach is his word. If we lose touch with the master's heart. If we forget that it's by grace that we stand. In our preaching, let's not trust in our hermeneutics and homiletics. Instead, let's lean in toward the heart of Jesus and rely on the Holy Spirit. Let's keep his word. As we crusade for righteousness in an increasingly unrighteous world, let's not become self-righteous. How can we claim to speak for Jesus when we strain at a gnat and swallow a camel? How can we cast stones When the master himself refused to throw one. Here's our safeguard. It's his word, not ours. Well, the pastor in church with a little strength, that church in Philadelphia, did what was most important. Jesus told them, you have kept my word. I want to close by noting one of the preacher's many occupational hazards. Listen to one pastor's warning. The peril in the ministry is that we become like chefs who cook food we never taste. We're like the security guards at the Louvre, eyes glazed over in the midst of all those masterpieces they never look at. All they do is look at the people who come to see them. This peril always looms when we objectify the word of God rather than let it speak to us. You see, here's the ultimate test. Have you, I mean you, have you kept his word? It's amazing now that I have grandkids how quickly I'll put my busy life on hold just to waste a few hours with Colton. I cherish any opportunity to see Quincy. But do I approach my times in God's word with the same enthusiasm? 
Do I relish and cherish his word for what it means in my life, not just my ministry? Pastor, when was the last time you teared up at a promise of God's grace? Or was awed by the account of God's glory? Or was moved to follow God in a new venture of faith? Or just sat there stunned silent at the depth of God's wisdom? Or is it all just sermon prep to you now? Can you remember the last occasion when you turned the sword of the Spirit on yourself? Let it prick your flesh. Let the word you wield speak to you. Like security guards in the art gallery, we get focused on the crowd rather than the masterpieces on display. One day, every pastor will stand before the eternal doorkeeper. The one with the keys who opens and no man shuts and who shuts and no one opens. I am sure there are many criteria by which a pastor's ministry will be judged. But perhaps the most important is this. Jesus will ask us, did you keep my word? How will you answer? Father, thank you this morning for this time together and for your word to us today. May we take heed to it for our lives, for our hearts, for our own salvation and for those who listen to us. We pray these things in Jesus name. Amen.